My name is Barbara Lowe Fisher. My son was injured by DPT vaccine in 1980, and this is a commentary brought to you by the nonprofit National Vaccine Information Center that can be read on nvic.org. Since I was asked to make a presentation about vaccine exemptions in 1997 at the Department of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., I've publicly defended the informed consent principle, which was defined as a human right at the doctor's trial at Nuremberg in 1947. Informed consent means you have the right to be fully informed about the benefits and risks of a medical intervention and the freedom to make a voluntary decision about whether or not to accept those risks without being coerced or punished for the decision you make. Informed consent applies not just to risks taken by participants in scientific experiments, but also to risks taken by patients under the care of physicians. It is my position and that of the National Vaccine Information Center that the informed consent principle applies equally to vaccination, which carries a risk of harm and that it cannot be abandoned to justify discriminating against and punishing people who refuse vaccinations for themselves or their minor children. NVIC takes a pro-education, pro-informed consent position. We worked with parents and healthcare professionals to add a conscientious belief vaccine exemption in Texas in 2003, and since then to block the elimination or restriction of medical, religious, and conscientious belief vaccine exemptions in 21 other states. We support the legal right for physicians to exercise freedom of thought and conscience and professional judgment that includes providing children with medical vaccine exemptions that may or may not strictly adhere to government policy. Today, when a person publicly advocates for informed consent protections in vaccine laws, an anti-vaccine label is usually immediately applied to shut down any further conversation. Perhaps because a conversation about ethics opens up a wider conversation about freedom. The right and responsibility for making a decision about risk-taking rightly belongs to the person taking the risk. When you become informed and think rationally about a risk that you or your minor child may take and then follow your conscience, you own that decision. And when you own it, you can defend it. And once you can defend it, you will be ready to do whatever it takes to fight for your freedom to make it, no matter who tries to prevent you from doing that. Albert Einstein, who risked a risk in Germany in the 1930s, when he spoke out against censorship and persecution of minorities, said, quote, Never do anything against conscience, even if the state demands it. There is no liberty more fundamentally a natural inalienable right than the freedom to think independently and follow our conscience when choosing what we are willing to risk our life or our child's life for. Because the journey we take on this earth is defined by the choices we make. If we are not free to make choices, the journey is not our own. The choices we make that involve risk of harm to our physical body, which houses our mind and spirit, those are among the most profound choices we make in this life. So vaccination must remain a choice because it is a medical intervention performed on the body of a healthy person that carries a risk of injury or death. And while we are all born equal with equal rights under the law, we are not born all the same. 
Each one of us is born with different genes and a unique microbiome influenced by epigenetics that affects how we respond to the environments we live in. We do not all respond the same way to pharmaceutical products like vaccines. So vaccine risks are not being borne equally by everyone in society. Why should the lives of those vulnerable to vaccine complications be valued any less than those vulnerable to complications of infections? And why should people not be free to choose to stay healthy in ways that pose far fewer risks? The act of vaccination involves the deliberate induction, introduction of killed, live attenuated, or genetically engineered microbes into the body of a healthy person, along with varying amounts of chemicals, metals, human and animal RNA and DNA, and other ingredients that atypically manipulate the immune system to mount an inflammatory response that stimulates artificial immunity. But there is no guarantee that vaccination will not compromise biological integrity or cause the death of a healthy or vaccine-vulnerable person, either immediately or in the future. There is also no guarantee that vaccination will protect a person from getting an infection with or without symptoms and transmitting it to others. Reports published by physician committees at the Institute of Medicine confirm that vaccines like infections, can injure and kill people, but that very little is known about how vaccines or microbes act at the cellular and molecular level in the human body. And the Institute of Medicine confirms that an unknown number of us have certain genetic, biological, and environmental susceptibilities that make us more vulnerable to being harmed by vaccines. But doctors cannot accurately predict who we are and that clinical trials of experimental vaccines are too small to detect serious reactions before they're licensed, and that the U.S. recommended child vaccine schedule through age six has not been adequately studied to rule out an association with allergies, autoimmunity, learning and behavior disorders, seizures, autism, and other brain and immune system dysfunction. And yet, with these large gaps in scientific knowledge, Government health officials direct physicians to vaccinate 99.99% of children regardless of known or unknown risks. Therefore, vaccination is a medical procedure that can be termed experimental each time it's performed on a person. By extension, no exceptions, mandatory vaccination laws create a de facto uncontrolled population-based scientific experiment that enrolls every child at birth and never ends, sacrificing an unknown number of vaccine-vulnerable children. Further, the U.S. Congress and Supreme Court have declared federally licensed vaccines to be, quote, unavoidably unsafe, removing civil liability from doctors who give vaccines and drug companies that sell vaccines in what has become a very lucrative, multi-billion dollar business in the U.S., at the same time, the Federal Vaccine Injury Compensation Program created by Congress in 1986 that was supposed to be a no-fault alternative to a lawsuit, not instead of a lawsuit, has been gutted by federal agencies so that today almost no child receives compensation when they're hurt by vaccines. Now, a global vaccine injury compensation program is being created 
to shield multinational corporations from liability for injuries caused by hundreds of new genetically engineered vaccines governments will mandate in the future. All this while medical trade groups affiliated with industry and government join forces to lobby for removal of flexible medical, conscientious, and religious belief exemptions from state health laws, as was done in California in 2015, so that those who refuse government-endorsed vaccines for themselves or their minor children can be denied in education, employment, health care, and other civil rights. In 1996, when I was in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., attending a conference on the role of physicians and scientists implementing public health policy during the Third Reich, I looked up and saw an inscription that took my breath away. It said, The first to perish were the children. From these a new dawn might have risen. This commentary which I originally presented in March 2017 at the inaugural meeting of Physicians for Informed Consent in California, is dedicated to mothers and fathers whose children died or became brain injured when the risks of vaccination turned out to be 100%. I'm arguing that the consequentialist theory of utilitarianism is a pseudo-ethic that must be rejected as the moral foundation of public health policy and law so it can be replaced with a compassionate ethic grounded in respect for the human right to autonomy and informed consent to medical risk-taking, including vaccine risk-taking. I remember the day in the spring of 1982 when I was a young mother with a four-year-old son struggling with the effects of a serious DPT vaccine reaction. I had just seen the NBC television documentary DPT Vaccine Roulette and was networking with other parents of DPT vaccine injured children in the Washington, D.C. area when I decided to attend a press conference at the American Academy of Neurology to hear a young pediatric neurologist talk about his study in which two-thirds of the babies whose deaths were classified as sudden infant death syndrome had died within three weeks of a DPT shot. This pediatrician was concerned that DPT vaccine may be a major unrecognized cause of early childhood death, including SIDS, and he suggested that more research be done. As soon as he finished, his physician colleagues launched a vicious attack on his professional expertise and personal integrity that left him physically trembling in a cold sweat. I had never seen anything like it. During the break, I was approached by a PhD scientist who at the time worked for the National Academy of Sciences. This scientist asked me why I was there, and I told him I wanted to know more about DPT vaccine because when I was taking my baby to be vaccinated, I had no idea that vaccines, which were supposed to keep children healthy, could actually kill them. He got this quizzical look on his face and said something to the effect that, it only happens once in a million kids. And instinctively I said, but if a vaccine kills even one, how can all children be legally required to get it? He looked surprised, uncomfortable, and walked away mumbling something about vaccine benefits far outweigh the risks, and sometimes we have to make sacrifices for the greater good. 
And I thought to myself, but the benefits didn't outweigh the risks for my child or for the babies who died after DPT shots in the study that young doctor tried to talk about before he was figuratively lynched for suggesting that DPT vaccine benefits might not outweigh the risks. And why was my child's health sacrificed without my knowledge or permission? And what is the good that is made greater by child sacrifice? And who defines it as good? When I became a mom in 1978, my son Chris was the light of my life. Happy, healthy, and precocious, he was saying words at seven months, speaking in full sentences by the age of two, and identifying words in the books we read together every day. One doctor told me he was cognitively gifted. But everything changed in 1980, when within hours of his fourth DPT shot, I witnessed the eyes of my two-and-a-half-year-old son roll back in his head and his head fall to his shoulder as if he'd fallen asleep sitting up. I carried him pale and limp to his bed, where he did not move for hours. I thought to myself, oh, he's just tired and just taking a really long nap, or maybe he's coming down with a cold. And when I finally was able to wake him, but he couldn't sit up or walk or speak coherently, when he had terrible diarrhea and only stayed conscious for a few minutes before falling into 12 more hours of deep sleep, I didn't understand that I had witnessed a classic post-DPT vaccine convulsion, a hypotonic, hyperresponsive reaction, and brain inflammation. Chris was not just taking a really long nap. He was unconscious in his bed and could have died that day. I did not know because my pediatrician had told me nothing about how to recognize a vaccine reaction, including symptoms of encephalitis, brain inflammation, that has been a well-documented complication of vaccination for two centuries. I did not know that the unusual local reaction after his third DPT shot was a warning sign, or that our family history of severe allergies and autoimmune disorders could increase vaccine risks. Even though I came from a family of doctors and nurses, had a college degree, and had worked at a teaching hospital, like most parents back then, I believed that vaccines were 100% safe and effective. And in the following days and weeks, when Chris could no longer concentrate or do what he could do before, when his personality changed and he was constantly sick with ear and respiratory infections, diarrhea, new food allergies, and severe weight loss, my family and I could not understand why Chris had regressed physically, mentally, and emotionally and become a totally different child. His doctors told us there was no explanation and said I should take him home and love him. Eighteen months later, when I and millions of other parents in America watched the Emmy Award-winning DPT vaccine roulette, I called the TV station and asked if I could have copies of the medical literature used to anchor the documentary. And it was in my living room as I read case history descriptions of DPT vaccine injury and death in the pages of Pediatrics and the British Medical Journal and New England Journal of Medicine that exactly matched the symptoms of brain inflammation I witnessed my son suffer that day. It was then I knew that physicians had been talking in medical journals for more than 50 years about the fact that pertussis vaccine could brain damage children, but no one had informed the mothers dutifully bringing their children for DPT shots 
legally required to go to school. As I tried to help my son cope with multiple learning disabilities that included dyslexia, fine and gross motor skill delay, auditory processing and attention deficit, and short-term memory delays so severe they confined him to a special ed classroom throughout his public school education. And as I interviewed hundreds of mothers for the book, DPT A Shot in the Dark, that medical historian Harris Coulter and I co-authored in 1985, I came to know so many families whose children had died or were much more severely vaccine injured than my child. Chris has worked hard to compensate for his learning disabilities, and he is a productive member of society today. But many vaccine-injured children tragically are not. My son is among the walking wounded in what has become an unprecedented and still unexplained chronic disease and disability epidemic now plaguing millions of children and young adults in America. It is an epidemic of learning disabilities, ADHD, asthma, seizures, autism, diabetes, depression, and other types of brain and immune system dysfunction marked by chronic inflammation in the body that has perfectly coincided with the tripling of the numbers of vaccines given to children from 23 doses of seven vaccines starting at two months through age six in the early 1980s to the current 69 doses of 16 vaccines starting on the first day of birth with 50 doses given before age six. In 1982, it was my curiosity about the truth of the matter that pushed me to research the science, policy, law, ethics, history, and politics of vaccination and spend two decades participating in public engagement projects at the Institute of Medicine and Department of Health and Human Services, where I served as a consumer member on vaccine advisory committees at the FDA and CDC, a journey that has now spanned half my life. So I offer you my perspective from that vantage point. Here we are in the 21st century, where the electronic communications revolution has created a virtual global public square on the World Wide Web, where more than 3 billion people are talking to and sometimes yelling at each other about ideas, values, and beliefs, just like they did in the public squares of ancient Athens and Rome, and in universities, newspapers, and on radio and television since then. Throughout recorded history, people have disagreed with each other about how to answer big questions like, where do we come from? Are we only physical matter or do we have an immortal soul, a consciousness that survives physical death? What is truth and how can we know it? What is ethical behavior and how can we define it? Most of the formal debates about these questions have been described in the history of philosophy which the ancient Greeks defined as love of wisdom that included study of knowledge, reasoning, nature of being or metaphysics, aesthetics, and ethics. The philosophy of science emerged as a separate discipline in the 18th and 19th centuries after mathematicians and astronomers mounted a successful challenge to the authority of organized religion. Since then, science has invaded and dominated every other branch of philosophy. As we are reminded every day in so many ways, science and math rule, and scientific evidence determines what is true and what is not. 
In fact, those who practice and submit to the authority of science insist that not only must science be used to define all truth, but leaders in science and medicine are authorities who should define the good, that is, define moral behavior, and what kind of cultural values we should have, and what kind of beliefs we should be allowed to hold and teach our children, and what kind of laws should be passed in order to limit the ability of individuals to make unscientific choices that presumably endanger the public health and welfare. That's a whole lot of pressure for many physicians who do not want to be put on a pedestal and required to exercise that kind of authority over the lives of fellow human beings because, first and foremost, it interferes with developing a relationship with patients based on mutual respect, trust, and shared decision-making. But the stark reality is that the scientification of every branch of philosophy has elevated prominent scientists and physicians promoting consensus science into positions of authority whose judgment should never be questioned. Long-held cultural values, such as respect for freedom of thought, speech, conscience, and religious beliefs, are being called into question, which in turn affects court decisions and the making of laws. Nowhere is this more visible than in public health law, using the materialist philosophy of utilitarianism to legally require all Americans to use an increasing number of vaccines without their voluntary informed consent. So how did we get here? How did science come to dominate how we define what is true and good for the individual and society in the 21st century? Although conversations about the meaning of life and what is good started before written history and is embedded in tenets of five surviving major religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, it was the classical Greek philosophers who began recording the debate. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle believed that we are physical matter animated by a vital spirit and we can use innate knowledge and reason to perceive what is good. Epicurus disagreed and said humans are only physical matter and have no spirit or innate knowledge and that seeking pleasure and avoiding pain is the highest good and guide to moral behavior. For 1500 years following the birth of Christ, the highest good was defined as knowing and loving God in Western cultures adopting Judeo-Christian moral values until the scientific revolution, when 15th and 16th century scientists Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, and Francis Bacon developed methods for determining what is true that put the existence of God on trial along with the definition of what is good. Although between the 16th and 19th centuries, Descartes, Locke, Kant, Hegel and other philosophers argued that humans are both physical matter and spirit and can use reason to understand scientific truth as well as to perceive the natural law that serves as a guide to what is good. The materialist philosophers Hobbes, Hume, Bentham, Comte, Marx, and Nietzsche argued that science proves there is no God or human spirit because we're only physical matter. And there are no absolute moral values, but rather science can be used to define what is true and good. 
This included the idea that a mathematical equation can be used to judge whether or not an individual action, government policy, or law is moral. The authors of the U.S. Declaration of Independence agreed with the philosophers who argued that humans have a physical body animated by a soul or spirit, and that we can use reason given to us by God to perceive the natural law, which includes natural rights that belong to all individuals and limit the authority of government. The Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution contains strong language protecting exercise of natural rights. These have been defined internationally as human rights, including freedom of thought, speech, conscience, and religious belief. But today, it is not respect for natural rights that guides public health policy in the U.S. It's the philosophy of utilitarianism created by Jeremy Bentham, a 19th century British attorney and social reformer. Bentham mocked the U.S. Constitution for mentioning God and affirming natural rights protected in the First Amendment. Like Comte, Marx, and Nietzsche who followed him, Bentham did not believe that man has a soul or innate intelligence, so he returned to the hedonistic Epicurean philosophy of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain to define what is good. Bentham's utilitarianism uses a mathematical equation that judges the rightness or wrongness of an action by its consequences. Bentham said that an action is only moral or ethical if it results in the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. With its emphasis on numbers of people, Bentham created utilitarianism primarily as a guide to state legislative policy, and vaccine cost-benefit analyses are rooted in utilitarianism. Bentham was a contemporary of British physician Edward Jenner, who took pus from a cowpox lesion and scratched it onto the arm of a young boy in an effort to prevent smallpox. Jenner's experiment, repeated over and over again in lots of people, created a live human-cow hybrid virus called vaccinia. The new chemical industry took that vaccinia virus, added some chemicals, and bottled it, selling it to doctors and governments. The mass smallpox vaccine campaigns that followed expanded the authority of a new branch of medicine focusing on population-based disease control called public health. 19th century physicians were enlisted by government to give infants and children smallpox vaccine and were persuaded to look the other way when some of them died or were left permanently disabled after developing raging vaccinia virus infections and inflammation of the brain. Fully embracing the utilitarian rationale, public health officials viewed individual smallpox vaccine casualties as necessary losses to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. At the turn of the 20th century, utilitarianism was fashionable in intellectual and political circles. It was the philosophical argument used by attorneys in 1905 to persuade the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a utilitarian ruling in Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Lutheran pastor Henning Jacobson and his son had suffered severe reactions to previous smallpox vaccinations. And Jacobson argued that genetic predisposition placed him at high risk for dying or being injured if he was forced to get revaccinated. The court dismissed Jacobson's concern for his own health and life. In a split decision with one dissenting vote, the court that included Oliver Wendell Holmes issued an opinion that would affirm the legal right for U.S. state legislatures to assign police powers to public health officials to restrict 
or eliminate individual liberty to in, in order to, quote, secure the general comfort, health, and prosperity of the state. The court maintained that all citizens can be compelled to receive smallpox vaccinations because the happiness and welfare of the majority outweighs the happiness and welfare of a minority. In other words, individual human sacrifice is ethical and legal if it is done for the common good. Georgetown law professor and mandatory vaccination proponent Lawrence Gostin has described it as, quote, the most important Supreme Court opinion in the history of American public health law. In 1927, then Chief Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes used the Jacobson ruling to give the state of Virginia a green light to sterilize Carrie Buck, a 17-year-old young single mother who doctors and state social workers had incorrectly judged to be mentally retarded, just like her daughter and mother, they said. Self-identifying as a Darwinian atheist and utilitarian, Chief Justice Holmes' admiration for exercise of power is reflected in his legal opinions. Holmes did not believe in the concept of natural rights and said, quote, between two groups of people who want to make inconsistent kinds of worlds, I see no remedy but force. He believed scientific knowledge should be used to improve the human race and said, quote, I can imagine a future in which science shall take control of life and condemn at once with instant execution what now is left up to nature to destroy, end of quote. And so when it came to Carrie Buck, Holmes the eugenicist coldly proclaimed, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes, end of quote. In this merciless 1927 Supreme Court decision, Justice in the 1905 Jacobson versus Massachusetts decision, Holmes achieved his goal of stripping cultural values and ethical principles from U.S. law. His logic was that if utilitarianism could be used to ensure the common good and protect society from infections through compulsory vaccination laws, then forced sterilization laws could be used to immunize society against becoming infected with bad genes. Darwin's theory of natural selection led to social Darwinism, or eugenics, that was viewed as a new science by U.S. intellectuals during the 1920s and 1930s. American biologist Charles Davenport had founded the Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island in 1910 to improve the human race, and soon courses on eugenics were offered at Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, Brown, and other universities. The National Education Association had a Committee on Racial Well-Being to help teachers integrate eugenics content into public health school textbooks. By 1932, California and 28 other states had passed compulsory sterilization laws, and the practice of eugenics was endorsed by leading U.S. scientists, medical doctors, lawyers, professors, businessmen, politicians, philanthropists, and social reformers like Margaret Sanger. The next year, in 1933, Hitler adopted eugenics as a central piece of his plan to protect the common good 
by eliminating individuals he considered to be a threat to the health, security, and economic well-being of the state. By the time eugenics became politically incorrect in the 1940s, physicians implementing government health policy had performed more than 60,000 involuntary sterilizations on mentally disabled or chronically ill Americans. Hitler was influenced by Marx and Nietzsche and inspired by U.S. eugenics laws. He blended utilitarianism with social Darwinism and nationalism to create a view of the state as one biological entity or body that must be kept healthy and free from disease and threats from unfit individuals. Enlisting the assistance of physicians and public health officials, the first minority considered unfit and expendable were severely handicapped children, the chronically sick and mentally ill, the useless eaters, they were called. And when the reasons for why a person was identified as a threat to the health, economic, stability, or security of the state grew longer to include minorities who were too old or too Jewish or too Catholic or too opinionated or simply unwilling to believe what those in control of the state said was true. As the list of those the state branded as persons of interest to be demonized, feared, tracked, isolated, and eliminated grew, so did the collective denial of those who had yet to be put on that list. When doctors were charged with crimes against humanity at the doctor's trial at Nuremberg for carrying out horrific scientific experiments on captive children and adults in the concentration camps, including vaccine experiments, they pointed to U.S. eugenics laws and invoked a utilitarian defense, claiming it was moral to sacrifice the health and lives of individuals to advance scientific knowledge that could save the lives of many more. Out of the doctor's trial at Nuremberg came the Nuremberg Code, of which Yale Law professor and physician Jay Katz said, quote, if not explicitly, then at least implicitly, commanded that the principle of the advancement of science bow to a higher principle of protection of individual inviolability. The rights of individuals to thoroughgoing self-determination and autonomy must come first, he said. The first principle of the Nuremberg Code is, quote, the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. The doctor's trial at Nuremberg put a human face on individual victims of immoral government health policies. The Nuremberg Code stands as an uncompromising affirmation of the value of every human life and the natural right to self-determination, a timeless guide to ethical behavior by scientists and physicians. While post-World War II Europe had to process what they had learned from the doctor's trial at Nuremberg and the Holocaust, things were very different in America. In our country, prominent members of our society who had promoted and participated in the practice of eugenics were never required to look in the mirror and reflect upon what they had done or face public disgrace. They just went underground. Our perception of what is true and good is very much influenced by the prism through which we are taught to view the world. In today's public schools, education is focused on science and math, but the study of philosophy and its impact on human history is not valued or taught that much. 
There is no discussion about the kind of utilitarian thinking that made eugenics acceptable in America. Few Gen Xers and millennials who will steer our nation into the second half of the 21st century understand the ramifications of allowing utilitarianism to guide public health policy and law, even as a specter of genetic engineering to change what it means to be human is already underway. Do they understand the influence of utilitarian philosophers like Dr. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton, who says it is ethical to euthanize disabled babies in the first 30 days of life. And it is ethical to euthanize elderly and disabled persons who are not aware they serve no useful purpose in society. Because he says, the life of a severely intellectually disabled person has no greater value than the life of a dog or pig. Dr. Paul Offit and other contemporary utilitarians who develop vaccines, make vaccine policy, and promote no exceptions mandatory vaccination laws are forcing us to kneel before them at an altar reminiscent of the one that a 19th century utilitarian August Comte built for his religion of humanity. We are not allowed to talk about what is true or good in the public square unless we have medical or academic credentials, and then only if we strictly adhere to promoting their consensus science, a code word for censorship that delegitimizes freedom of thought and dissent. Today, everybody knows somebody who was healthy, got vaccinated, and was never healthy again. But the vaccine science is settled, say the utilitarians, refusing to compare the health of vaccinated children to unvaccinated children. Vaccines do not injure and kill, they say. Or if they do, it is so rare that requiring some children to sacrifice their lives without their parents' informed consent is ethical in order to enforce mandatory vaccination laws that serve the greater good. It is for this reason that the debate about vaccination transcends vaccination. It is the tip of the spear in a much larger war that is being waged on cultural values and beliefs in America, which is why I call it the vaccine culture war. Because if the state can tag, track down, and force citizens against their will to be injected with biologicals of known and unknown toxicity today, then there will be no limit on which individual freedoms the state can take away in the name of the greater good tomorrow. Today, the battlefield of the 200-year war on microbes is littered with human casualties far too numerous to count. While in a natural fight to survive, the microbes have evolved to evade the vaccines. And the scientists and physicians in leadership positions determined to win that war continue to fire away stepping around the bodies of vaccine-damaged children lying on the ground. Do I think the public health officials flying the science flag with a utilitarian star on it wake up every day and say to themselves, I want to hurt a child today? Of course not. Most doctors and scientists want to help, not harm people. Do I think they've lost their way? 
blinded by a utilitarian pseudoethic that makes it easy to ignore the bodies lying on the ground so they can allow themselves to believe that human sacrifice is ethical when it serves the greater good? Yes, I do. They have forgotten to ask themselves this question. When one individual is considered expendable for the good of society, how many more can be considered expendable? Is it 500, 5,000, 50 million, or more? How many is too many to sacrifice for the happiness of the rest? And who gets to decide which ones among us are expendable? Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel said, quote, When you take an idea or concept and turn it into an abstraction, that opens the way to take human beings and turn them also into abstractions. When people are turned into abstractions, what is left? He is right. Abstractions are much easier to write off as coincidences. Abstractions are easier to add up in a column when there is no name or face put to them. Abstractions do not live or breathe, bleed or convulse, scream or die. Abstractions can be dismissed and buried in files where nobody ever has to look. After surviving four concentration camps, physician Viktor Frankl called on mankind to reject the materialist view that a person only has value if he is useful to society, which makes him a slave to the state. Frankl said, quote, The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and Majinek were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Transcending the horror of what he had witnessed, Dr. Frankel was able to see that, quote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. It is the spiritual freedom, which cannot be taken away, that makes life meaningful and purposeful, he said. In the 21st century, all of us are called upon to choose whether or not we will embrace what Albert Schweitzer called a reverence for life. It requires us to turn away from materialist philosophers like Hobbes, Bentham, Comte, Marx, Nietzsche, and Singer, who say that individual life does not matter that life has no meaning, and that morality can be reduced to a mathematical equation. Enlightened physicians and scientists with compassion and courage are called upon to take back leadership of their profession from those who have lost their way. Even as those who have been victims of utilitarian health policies must continue to witness in the public square. Only then can we reject utilitarianism as a guide to the practice of medicine, so consensus science, orthodoxly, will give way to a real science that yields the truth about vaccination and health. Only then can we transcend the horror of what has happened to far too many children in the name of the greater good and adopt an authentic ethic, one that values individual autonomy and freedom of thought, speech, and conscience, civil liberties, 
that have been an antidote to tyranny in its many forms throughout human history. Our mission continues. No forced vaccination, not in America.